Well, good morning again. I'm still Bob Nienheis, as I was 10 minutes ago. And so it's a delight to have you here in the auditorium with us. And if you're online joining us, thanks for spending this hour with us today. We are in week three of a series that is titled, Who is God? And for eight weeks, we're in the process of exploring how God has revealed himself, his character, his heart, and especially we're learning how God expects and desires us to relate to him. It's taking us to a variety of passages, both Old Testament and New Testament, some you may be familiar with and some may be new to you. But in the process, we're digging deeply in these early weeks into a passage in the Old Testament which contains a whole set of rules, regulations, or as we know them, commandments, the Ten Commandments. These were given to ancient Israel back in the day by Moses, and we still understand the value of them as we come forward today. Now, for the benefit of those of you who may be joining us for the first time, or those of you who've gotten a little disoriented because of vacations, uh, let me just take a minute to catch us up on where we have been. We began our study two weeks ago by exploring a common misunderstanding about God. Namely, that God gives rules, does not give rules as a condition of relationship. Instead, God gives rules as a confirmation of relationship. They don't come to us to establish relationship, they come to confirm the relationship that we already have with him. Said more simply, we put it this way. With God, relationships always precedes rules. I like to think of it this way. You give rules to your kids. I gave rules to our kids. God gives rules to his kids. God gave the Ten Commandments to a group of people, the children of Israel, that he called out of Egypt, brought into relationship with himself. They were already in relationship before he gave them those rules. So for God, again, the relationship comes before the rules. That's radically different than other world religions. In other world religions, we find that there's a God who has things that he wants to give people, but first they have to obey the rules that he sets up for them. And if the people follow the rules, if they do them well, if they obey enough, then good things come their way. And when they die, well, the afterlife gets a little bit better because they've been good. Or if they believe in the reincarnation, they come back a little bit better off than what they were the last time around. But God has revealed his rules because he's already established relationship of trust with his people. That's what we talked about in week one of this series. In week two, we explored the first two of the Ten Commandments. And we discovered something about what God values. Because he starts with two foundational commitments that cover everything in life. The first commandment reveals that to God, recognition is more important than obedience. Recognition is more important than obedience, which sounds a little contrary. But let me explain exactly what that means. God wants his people to acknowledge who he is because he knows if they acknowledge who he is, 
they will then obey what he says. And who is he? Well, we saw last week that he is the one and only God. And when we acknowledge him as the true God, the, the one and only God, we begin to then understand the importance and the value of living in obedience with him. Then in the second commandment, God tells his people that they're to worship him alone, not anyone, not anything else. In fact, they're not even to make idols, not of him or of anything else that exists in the world. And why shouldn't they have idols? Because all of the other religions in all of the societies around them all had their idols. Every home had their idols. Every village had its idols. Every group had its idols. Well, God said no idols because I am more than anything you can ever create. I cannot be shrunk down. I cannot be managed in some form. I'm not a God made of plaster or a God made of precious metals before which people bow and to which they bring their incense and their gifts. I'm not a God people can carry around with them or set on a shelf in their home. The God that reveals himself is the one and only God. This God wants to be at the center of his people's lives. He wants to be their compass to give them direction in life. He wants to be their companion as they journey through life. He wants to be, he wants to be their king. Which brings us to the third commandment, which is where we spend our time today. It's one that you may remember if you were raised in the church like I was. I'm fortunate enough to have been brought up in a God-loving, Jesus-following family. And as a result, we went to church every Sunday. Twice. <laughs> Some of you have been there, right? We went in the morning and we went in the evening, and we had a whole set of rules, but we won't have to get into that because I'm still in recovery. <laughs> Almost every Sunday, in our morning service, it was our custom at the church to read responsibly the Ten Commandments. Now, if you don't know what read responsibly means, don't worry about it, we just all read it in church. But we read the Ten Commandments. And obviously, if you do something that often, that regularly, it must be really important. Otherwise, why would you do it all the time? And if it's really important, then it's also important that you do what it says, right? I mean, wouldn't that stand to reason? Especially if you're a 10 or a 12-year-old kid sitting there reciting these words. Now, the third commandment, at least in my home and in our church and in our circle of relationships, it came with a very specific application. An application that I've come to believe, while very well-intentioned, reflects really a serious misunderstanding of the commandment itself. I learned the commandment of the King James Version. And maybe these words will sound a little familiar to you. It went like this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not. That's good King James English. Take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And it was the in vain part 
that everybody camped on and said, we've got, to, we've got to really make sure we don't do anything to take the Lord's name in vain. So what did that look like? Well, this is how my parents interpreted it, and this is how I had to live with it. They told me that if I got really angry, or if I was injured in some way, I was not ever, ever to yell out God's name or God's son's name in anger. I couldn't use it in anger. I couldn't even say anything that came close to God's name or God's son's name. So, again, in my home, I couldn't say, gosh, I was too close to God. I couldn't say, gee, because that sounded too much like Jesus. I told you, we had some rules. But I could say things like, bummer. <laughs> or rats, <laughs> or shucks. Those were okay. Uh, but frankly, they don't get it done, do they? <laughs> they didn't then, and they still don't oftentimes. And it wasn't just my family. Like I told you, uh, this was how the commandment was interpreted in our church and in many churches, and in many homes. It's still, you should know, by far, the most common interpretation of the third commandment today, that all it says is that you cannot use God's name or Jesus' name as an expletive. A friend tells me about having a roommate in college, and we'll call the roommate, I don't know, Brady. That's a good name. <laughs> that works. And, and this roommate was raised in a very strict Pentecostal church in rural Michigan. Uh, Brady, it seems, had some real necessary and important ways of keeping God's name sacred. As you might expect, obeying this command, however, would sometimes create some awkward moments. For example, my friend and Brady would be sitting in I don't know, a coffee shop. Uh, and, and someone nearby would suddenly exclaim, Jesus Christ! And Brady would go, loves you. <laughs> That's awkward. And if you're sitting with him at that point, you wish you weren't. In fact, you wish you were anywhere else at that point. Or at least, if you had to be there, maybe you could put on your cloak of invisibility and you'd do much better. To be fair, however, this approach to obeying the commandment was not something that came up in the 20th century. If you go back hundreds, even thousands of years, 200 years after the Exodus, you would find that the Jewish leaders similarly narrowed this commandment into some very specific ways. They took the literal, literal name of God very seriously. When they would copy the text of the, of the Old Testament, the scribes did it word by word by word. And when they came to the name of God, as they were writing it onto their new scrolls, they would use a different ink and a different pen because they didn't want to accidentally defame 
God's name. Moreover, the Jews refuse to say any of the names of God that are recorded for us in Scripture. Instead, they would call him Hashem. Hashem, a Hebrew word which means the name. And when they would say the name, when they would say Hashem, they would cover their heads out of respect. Because again, they believed there was great sacredness in the name of God. But is this really the heart of the commandment? Is this really what the third commandment is all about? Is this what God had in mind when for the very first time he provides ten religious rules to ancient Israel? I want you to notice something with me. I want you to notice how this third commandment is translated in a newer, more recent version of the Bible. I think it's actually a more accurate representation of the Hebrew. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not misuse, not take in vain, but misuse. It broadens it considerably. You need to understand that misuse comes from the Hebrew word nisa. And nisa means to carry or to take something somewhere it isn't supposed to be. That's where we get the word misuse, to carry or take something somewhere it isn't supposed to be, which is very different from taking it in vain. It's much different from just using it as an expletive. It, it basically means this. Don't associate God's name with something with which God isn't associated. Don't associate God's name with something with which God isn't associated. It also means don't use the name of God to get something God doesn't want. In other words, don't use God to accomplish your own desires. Let me put it this way. When I was in high school and college, I worked with my grandfather. He was a builder. So summer vacation, school breaks, all of that. I was out there pounding nails with my grandfather. And it wasn't uncommon for him to send me to the lumber yard to pick up materials for a job. I would, get the, I would go to the lumber yard, get the necessary materials, load them in the truck, and say to the guys at the lumber yard, hey, just put this on John Zurhoff's account. And they say, okay, take off, you're good. I used his name to pay for the materials that we needed on the job. Now imagine, one day I go to the lumber yard and I load the back of the truck up with a whole bunch of materials. Like other times, I just tell the guys, hey, put this on John Zurhoff's account. He'll take care of it. This time, however, the materials weren't gotten for a job that we were on. They were actually for a project that I was working on myself, away from the job, for my own benefit. I used my grandfather's name, or better put, I misused my grandfather's name because he didn't know that I was getting the material for my project and that he would have to pay for it. I did something with his name that he didn't want done, that he didn't even know about. And what's more, 
I may have affected his reputation at the lumberyard because I misused his name. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders had made an art of misusing the name of God. They had figured it out and had fine-tuned it in ways that made great profit for them. It was true of both religious groups. You've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they both had figured out how to misuse God's name. And you need to know that it made Jesus furious. In fact, midway through his time with his disciples, Jesus confronts the Pharisees about the misuse of God's name. We want to look at that story. <clears throat> and it takes place up in northern Israel, in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And these religious leaders had developed a destructive tradition that focused on the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and your mother. So the Pharisees had developed this process by which now people could obey the commandment and yet disobey the commandment at the same time. This fifth commandment is given without any qualifications. Basically, as long as your parents are alive and you are alive, you are to honor them. That's what the commandment says. But the religious leaders created a workaround, a very creative workaround. They taught that the people could come to them, the religious leaders, and dedicate their worldly possessions to God. It was a practice called korban. It's a Hebrew word, which means a gift to or devoted to God. So you had resources, money, cattle, sheep, all of that. And you come to the religious leaders and you say, these are now korban. Basically, God, everything I have is yours. I make it all available to you for your service, which all sounds very spiritual, except for the last part of it, which means, which says, oh, and by the way, God, when you need this, you just let me know, and I've got it for you. Well, you can see where this is going to go, right? How's that happen then in real life? The Pharisees came with this tradition to get around the commandment, and this is what Jesus has to say about all of that. Go to the text. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Understand this. What was happening is that they were using Corban to keep their own things and not to help their parents. And Jesus ends it this way. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This was not a singular example. There were multiple examples of how they manipulated and misused God's name to accomplish things that were way beyond what God ever had intended for them. How does this work out in practicality? If anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, then you don't have to let anything 
go for them. You don't have to give to them. You don't have to serve them. Jesus is saying, God has clearly spoken. Yet you have developed a tradition to get around the commandment. You've created a whole system of ways to nullify what God has said. And what's more, you're doing it in the name of God. People assume God supports your interpretation, your tradition, because you're a religious leader. And in doing this, you are affecting the reputation of God. You are misusing his name. Late in his life, Jesus confronts another misuse of God's name, this time in the temple. Listen as John, a disciple of Jesus, tells that story. In the temple courts, he, Jesus, found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. The Sadducees, that's the other religious leader group, had set up a very successful business in the temple. In the outer courts, they were selling pre-blessed animals for sacrifice. The people would come to the temple. They would somehow have to purchase these animals that were already pre-blessed, at a price that the Sadducees would set. But here's the kicker. Not only was that going on, at the same time, they had to use temple money to buy the animals. They couldn't use the regular currency of the day. And of course, there were people sitting at tables who were more than willing to exchange the currency of the day for the temple money so they could buy these, these uh, pre-blessed animals. And all of this happened at a significant markup. And who profited from all of this? The Sadducees, the religious leaders. They were doing to poor people what these poor people couldn't really afford to have done to them. People who came to honor God's call to sacrifice in worship. These religious leaders had allowed the system to be corrupted. And in the process, they had become some of the wealthiest individuals in the land. They made themselves rich by a misuse of God's name. When Jesus walks into the temple, he is furious. He sees the religious leaders misusing God's name and God's system for their own good. They're polluting God's reputation. Check out how Jesus responds. So he made a whip out of cords and drove from all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus does something that doesn't seem very spiritual or very kind. He makes a whip, and he stages a riot in the temple courts. And then listen to what comes next. It is written, Jesus said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You religious leaders, you've made God's house into a den of robbers. The Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. And you are stealing. And you are stealing in God's name. You have violated the clear commandment of God. You've created a system that allows you to steal from the people. And you've done it in God's name. When people show up at the temple, people trust that this is God's way. They trust it because the religious leaders have put it in place. But it's not right. People think that God wants to rip them off. 
and you have twisted what they believe God to be. You've misused the commandment. More importantly, you have misused God's name. People can't understand who God really is and what he wants for them because of your misuse of his commandment and his name. It's a good thing religious people today don't misuse God's name. Yeah, right. Unfortunately, it happens more than we want to acknowledge. Actually, it may explain why so many people today leave so many churches today. Because all they see and all they hear are a bunch of rules and restrictions and regulations. What they don't see, what they don't hear, what they don't experience is the command of Jesus to love one another, to love our neighbors, to care about the people around us. And people say, well, if God's only about rules, regulations, and restrictions, then I don't want any part of that. And we've misused God's name and destroyed God's reputation. And people walk away from him. You know, with that third commandment, there's an incredible warning that we haven't read yet. But we need to look at it. This is what it says. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Why? For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. God says, in effect, I'm not going to put up with anyone who misuses my name. And it's not because he's mean or vindictive or because he wants to destroy us and, and our, our lives somehow. We've just already have seen what happens when people misuse the name of God. When someone misuses God's name, God's reputation suffers. And the person who misuses God's name suffers because he or she misses God's plan and purpose for their life. And the others who are the recipients of the misuse of God's name suffer because they are misled into a wrong idea of who God is and what God desires for them. I believe the purpose of the third commandment is this. To warn God's people not to attach his name to something apart from his will. Do not attach God's name or Jesus' name to something that is apart from their will. Because at the end of the day, what happens is people don't come to know God. At best, at very best, they only become religious. And when they become religious, they have traditions. But they don't have God. So let me bring this home in a couple of practical ways. First, I really do believe that my pastors and even my parents were partly right. We should never use God's name or Jesus' name as an expletive. It's just never necessary. I remember my basketball coach in college saying, after he heard a little expletive taking place underneath the basket in one of our practices, when you talk like that, it shows that you have a small mind and a limited vocabulary. You can do better. We never should be using God's name or Jesus' name as an expletive. 
I'll leave it up to you to decide whether gosh and gee and some of those placeholders are appropriate or not. That's your call. What I am certain of, of is this. God's name is never to be used as, as an emphasis to a statement you want to make. Second, and this is the big idea for today, God treats his, trusts his reputation to people. Specifically, today, to people like you and me. We carry God's reputation. We carry his name everywhere we go. And God's desire is that people who don't know him can watch us and listen to us and see what God is like. People are watching us to see what God is like in every circumstance of life, like this, for instance. They're watching to see how we speak to and treat our spouse and our children. People are watching how we speak to and treat our employees and how we speak about and treat our supervisor or our employer. People are watching how we speak to and treat the barista at Starbucks or Madcap, how we treat and speak to the server at the restaurant, how we speak to and treat the clerk at the grocery store. People outside of faith are watching us to see what difference God makes in our lives. Every day, we carry his name and reputation with us wherever we go. The big question that remains, the big question that we have to answer, do we carry God's name well? As we walk into our week, will we carry God's name well or will we, will we misuse it? and damage his reputation? Will we call people to him or push people away from him? God trusts his name and reputation to people, to you and me. Do we carry his name well? Let's make sure that starting today, we carry God's name in a way that honors him at home, at work, in the community, no matter the circumstance, not just in this building when we gather for a service, but in every instance of life, that we carry his name well and honor him with it. Speaking kindly, acting graciously, behaving properly, and showing God's love to those around us. That's what it means to carry God's name well. Oh, oh, yeah, and this. No using God's name or Jesus' name as a swear word. That's never right. All right. Now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. We're going to close our service in prayer. And before I pray, just two quick things. First of all, maybe you're here today, and you would love to have someone pray with you. We've got some Keystone friends who are going to be over here underneath the screen. And if you need someone to pray for you, you've got a burden, you've got something going on in your life, you say, I just need somebody to pray for me and with me, these folks would love to do that with you. You can meet them after the service under the screen, and they will pray just for a few moments with you. And secondly, if you're in that 55 and over crowd, uh, we'd love to have you come out and join us on the patio for a cup of coffee and an opportunity to meet some of the Encore folks. Uh, now, please join me as I pray. 
Father, it's clear that our words matter. Matter more than sometimes we think they do. And so we ask today, as we have been reminded, that we will speak of you well, that we will not misuse your name, that you will help us to be mindful of the words that we choose and the way that we speak and the way that we live so that we might honor you. And instead of pushing people away from you, draw them to you. May our lives be so compelling, may our speech be so compelling that people will say, I want what they have. And they then come to walk in relationship with you, the living and true God. Thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on the remainder of our day. May we honor you and serve you well in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, Amen. Thank you. Have a great day.